0: Welcome to another episode of Not So Gentle Reminder. I am Dr. Christina, a board-certified pediatric emergency medicine doc. And I'm Dr. Vicky, a board-certified neonatal intensivist. We are friends and pediatricians who survived our training to become skilled but salty physicians. We are excited to share with you our evidence-based take on important pediatric topics. Welcome back to our second part of our discussion with Dr. Matt Grossman about how babies under 60 days with fevers are treated as a very special class of patients. Please refer back to the first episode to get the beginning parts, but thank you for staying tuned for this very important topic.
1: The trickier ones are the kids who look pretty well when they come in. They had a fever, but they're still kind of doing, they're still living their baby life and, and looking okay. Those are the ones where we say, like, okay, well, they look okay. They're probably okay. Well, the problem is if we say that, we're going to miss a bunch of kids who actually have bacterial infections. So what we tried to do over time is say, let's see if we can pick out those well-appearing kids who actually have an infection. Let's just try if we can identify those kids. And it turns out we're bad at that. And we always are going to miss some of those kids. So what we've tried to do instead is uh, identify the kids who we're pretty sure aren't sick.
2: So we're bad at figuring out who it is that's sick. That doesn't make us proud. So we're trying to figure out who's not sick.
1: What we don't want to do, if we can avoid it, is take every one of those kids who has a fever and do all of that testing and give them antibiotics because there are all sorts of side effects to everything we do. Being in the hospital, hospital is. We we love the hospital. I I'm a hospitalist. I work in the hospital. It's right in my name, but it's 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 about the least safe place to be in the world. Is is to be in a hospital.
0: It's very restful, though. I've heard.
1: Yeah, it's right. You can. It's it's first of all, there. That's where all the sick people are. So it's a it's a great place to pick up infections. Uh, it's impossible to get any rest. It's incredibly stressful. If you don't need to be there, you don't want to the be there.
2: The food is crummy. The, food,
1: the food's crummy. If if you make errors, the errors can have major consequences. The things that we will do involve a lot of poking and a lot of things that cause pain. The medications we're giving the antibiotics are definitely not benign. more that we learn about that and, and how they're interacting with our with our gut floor, our microbiome uh, may have some lasting consequences. So if we don't need to do any of that stuff, we really, really don't want to do it. And so, Instead of taking every kid who has a fever, we want to try to say, okay, maybe half of those kids, we can be pretty sure they have a virus and they're doing well, so we don't have to do all of those things. So that's really our goal is to try to select out the kids who are comfortable are not going to get really sick, and then just have them go home and and watch them closely from home.
0: But I mean, we also have spent a lot of time talking about how we're we're bad at finding these kids in particular. So I think this is a good segue specifically into talking about these new guidelines that were all the rage. I think they made the emergency medicine blogs do a lot of chatter because this- That's how
2: you know you've made it.
0: That is how you know you've made it. It's on the emergency medicine (laughs) blogs.
1: interrupt quickly, I wouldn't say, we've said we're bad at it. We're actually not bad at it at all. You have to really be almost perfect at it. Because the potential for really missing, if you just sent everybody home, and two of those kids had serious infections, they could have really, really bad outcomes, they could get super sick, they could potentially die. And so really, you're not working with a net here. So we're, we're actually quite good at it. But we're not, we're, we're not good enough that we're not going to, we know we're not going to miss a few kids. If we, if we do it by just saying by our guess, we know we will miss a couple of kids out of 100 who might have an infection.
0: So then these guidelines that I think first, the update has been long coming. It's been a very long process. And I think learning a little bit more about how that process has gone is hopefully comforting to some because there are a lot of very smart people doing a lot of thinking about keeping babies and your baby safe, specifically not missing those catastrophes. In terms of talking about how was the population picked? How are these guidelines done? Can you lend some insight there?
1: Guidelines are not providing any new research or anything. There, You have the experts in the field who are taking all the things we've done and trying to come up with basically a plan for how we should approach these babies. What's the best plan we can do this so that we're going to minimize all the stuff that we're going to do to the babies while making sure that we're going really going to minimize any of the kids who, have, who, are, who are delaying them getting appropriate treatment. And as we've gotten in the last 15 years or so, as we've, as we've moved into these electronic medical records, we now have access to these huge databases. Uh, the information we have is much, much better and much broader than we had when we tried to do this uh, really 30 years ago uh, is when we were really working on this for the first time. And so there's much more information. And so we are, we are getting better and better at it, but it's still really just being able to identify more kids who we don't have to worry so much about and trying to zero in more on the kids we think are, are sicker.
0: When you say there isn't new research, I think the one caveat that I would say is looking at inflammatory markers is probably a little bit newer and ones in particular that we like to look at.
1: Yes, I'm sorry. There's definitely been since the last uh, guidelines, there's been tons of new research. The guidelines themselves aren't doing research, but they are taking all the stuff that's been done. Some of it's like you said, it's kind of just tweaking what we've done before, but we do have some better labs. And so instead of waiting for these cultures, we are always looking for labs that can give us a hint to whether that you might have one of these infections. We have really good ones for urinary tract infections, tell you whether there's, there's certain things that are signs of infections in your urine. And if you don't have those, then you really don't have a urinary tract infection. So those are really helpful. And we have similar things for um, the cerebral si- spinal fluid, looking for meningitis. Whereas if you don't have any signs of inflammation in, those, in the, the fluid, uh, then you, you really don't have meningitis. The problem with that is that fluid is really difficult to get. You kind of have to get it just right without, without it being contaminated uh, with any blood, which is uh, it's, it's technically a much more difficult procedure, and the success rate is a little bit lower. But we do have those tests. What we don't have is a really good one for the blood infections, the bacteremia. And so we do have some improvements. In the, in the past, we used things like white blood cell counts, which are terrible at predicting these things either way, there's nothing low or high or anything that tells you anything. But now we have newer tests, CRP we've had for quite some time. And the newest one is one called procalcitonin. Looks like it's the best one. It just isn't available everywhere. It's really important for it to be available for with a quick turnaround. So at most big academic places, you'll be able to do that. So at Yale, we can get that right away. We love that one. We use it all the time. But if you can't get it, it takes you six hours to get it back. It doesn't help you at all. So it has to be something you can get back quickly. But it, it, thats that's been the most precise one yet, giving us an idea of who, who isn't sick and who
0: is sick. So a big pro for the procalcitonin, if you will.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yep.
0: It's also just been interesting to see the body of literature evolve here because I think a lot of work was done from large research groups out of Europe, large research groups here in the United States. And as you said, there is certainly a luxury to being a provider, a physician in a large academic center where all of these things are readily available. We're spoiled in a lot of ways to have that, but that's not to say that people who are practicing out in the community or in the boonies are not looking at these very same guidelines and trying to make the best informed decisions for the babies that are in front of them.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, everyone's trying to do the the right thing and the best thing by them and what's great about these guidelines now is they should be things that are that you can follow at least Parts of it, and, and again, if you don't if you don't have access to procalcitonin, you have these other labs, these other approaches that gives everybody uh, a way to manage the baby that's that's coming in in front of them, regardless of what where you are and how many resources you have around you. It, it basically gives you an idea of what, 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 how worried should you be? What is the risk of having this kind of infection? Dr. Christina, you've thrown out some of these numbers where these it's not you know nine percent of them are going to have a bacterial infection, maybe ninety percent of that nine percent is going to be a UTI. And how, how do we worry about those, that really serious other 1% or so that have one of these more serious infections and, and, and how those numbers move up and down and, and what we should do about it? Those are things that are really anybody can use. And what you're going to do with that information might change. If you, if you live uh, 30 seconds from the hospital and then you may say, okay, look, it may be okay to go home. And we're going to follow the labs. If anything changes, you can come right back. Whereas if you live four hours away, well, then you're coming into the hospital. So the guidelines are pretty good at saying, like, this is that they should be able to work for everybody wherever they are.
0: Yeah, and that the array of options that are available. I think the other thing that comes up is with that admission when we were talking about the laser beams. I don't want to detract from the laser beams and their stupendous efforts, but this is where there is some regional variability in terms of are people staying for 36 hours? Are they staying for the full eight, 48 hours? Like how quickly can we get them out of the hospital? Because as you said, there's not a whole lot of safety to be found.
1: As somebody who's, who, who works in safety as well, I want I, I want you out of the hospital as soon as possible. So we're usually discharging somewhere in that 18 to 24 hour range if you're well appearing or cultures are negative and we've got good, good lab samples. Uh, and I think you know around that time it tips over to be more much more dangerous to be in the hospital than not and we're not really providing much benefit once we're we're fairly certain you don't have an infection that needs to be treated at that point and if the baby's doing well it's time to get home so that's something i think parents can advocate for too and really put it's it's important to be able to, to have your doctors if they if they want to keep you in the hospital explain why explain what the benefit is and sometimes you you guys come together can come to different different uh, solutions hospital if you're, you're taken care of by a hospitalist so they love to talk so so you'll be in a you know the, the, they're very they're a very chatty group because we don't actually
2: i haven't seen it we,
1: <laughs> we don't do anything like dr christina is always you know doing things and <laughs> helping people like both by talking and with her hands and we just talk so we're 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 open. but you open think chat. more we we think so we'd love to we love to have that conversation make make us explain why we're doing what we're doing
2: So just to summarize where we've been, we've got the fever that's a sign of infection, often describing an infection for us that we or alerting us to an infection that we can't see with the naked eye. We don't want people to check for it unless the baby is somehow not behaving their best baby self. When they check, they need to get in touch with their provider. Under 60 days, they go, they get some version of the shebang. And the shebang involves fairly invasive things, getting these inflammatory markers and then getting a needle potentially stuck into their cerebral spinal fluid, ideally not, but quite possibly getting a catheter in their urinary tract. Although there are some newer, funner methods to get urine out that are involving telling a joke or just wiggling the baby until there's something produced, we check the blood with a needle, we fire up the laser beams, we're very excited. One of us is very excited about the laser beams. (laughs) And then often, if these things don't look like they're fantastic, we admit the child. So it's important to set the expectations of you are going to be in the hospital with the lack of sleep with the crummy food, pack your phone charger, pack a magazine, pack a snack, it's not great over there. And then you are, if you're someone who lives close to the hospital, potentially a shorter stay, And you encounter a chatty hospitalist who wants to explain to you why that's okay. And sometimes you are somebody who lives farther from the hospital, so it can make more sense to stay longer until the laser beams do what they're supposed to do. There is a population for whom this does not apply. And I wanted to touch on that. One bit of the population is my favorite kind of baby, the preterm baby. These guidelines do not apply for. Somebody who's immune compromised, despite our extensive study, these guidelines do not apply for, and that means. Kids up to eight days old, and children with other known immune compromises. And then, what about children at sixty-one days of life? I'm certainly bored by them. They're not young enough for my tastes, unless they've been in the NICU this whole time, in which case, love you. What happens at the sixty-one day mark? We don't care.
1: Uh, yeah, we've lo- we've totally lost interest at that point. Yes, uh, no, we don't. We don't. Okay. And 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 it's important. I think that's fine. Say <laughs> no more.
0: Episode
2: over.
1: When you say. <laughs> right. Yeah, we, it's way too much. We're important. done.
2: Thank you for coming on.
1: <laughs> when you say that the guidelines don't apply to that group in the first month, that's because the guidelines, the idea is to say, okay, when when do you not have to do all of the things, which is all those lab tests, all of those cultures from the urine, the blood, the spinal fluid, and antibiotics. So the idea is in that first week of life, you're, you got you should do all of those things because the risk of not doing it is too great. So that's why they're not really in the guideline really that so that first week, the rate of bacterial infections is really high. And then over the next two weeks, it's high. And then actually, it starts to come down quite a bit. And it, at, as you get into that, that fourth week, it's lower, and it stays lower throughout the next uh, through, through that 60 days, you know, it, it's sort of silly, because there's, a, there's this cutoff where at 59 days, we would say, well, we're very interested. And at 60 days, we get past that, then we're not interested anymore the cutoffs are always somewhat artificial with that but the idea is is we're as this baby is now getting older they are getting a little better at telling you maybe what's going on uh they're not obviously talking to you but they they are a little more interactive and they're most importantly their immune system is improving so they are not as susceptible to some of these things that they they would get sick with in the first week of life or the first month of life they're not gonna get sick with anymore their immune system can now handle those so they are they are maturing right before your eyes and so when they have a fever and they look well, uh, they are very, very unlikely at that point to have a bacterial infection.
0: Kind of like the arbitrary cutoff of you were not an adult, you turn 18, and now you're an adult.
1: That's right. Yes.
0: Magical threshold.
1: Right. And the idea is, again, that if you're well-appearing, if, you, if, you, if your baby is, is 65 days old and has a stiff neck, then you're going to be worried about meningitis. Uh, But it's really the well-appearing kid with a fever who who really doesn't look that sick is at that point is really probably not sick.
2: I was hoping to get a laser beam type answer where you're Uh, like, actually, no, it is scanned continuously and it happens continuously. And we've arrived at (laughs) at a degree of precision these days. So we actually can tell you that exactly at 59, 59, (laughs) you know, or 60 days precisely when midnight strikes. Forget it. The child is an adult. They're ready.
1: They're they're ready. They're ready to face the world. Yes.
2: Yeah. No. Put them in school. Get them a driver's license. You know. Put yeah. them to work. Make them do this. make yeah. themselves Time to start useful. Start babysitting. Yeah. Perhaps I'm revealing a little bit more about my upgrade. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's that's a that's a different yeah. podcast altogether where we do, you know, the past life regression and the discussion of the how things happened. In terms of creating this guideline, given that this has been such a source of effort and interest throughout the field, should we expect everybody to do the same thing at every hospital? And if not, you just get to contest your bill with the insurance company and get your money back?
1: Uh, so no. Is so- everyone <laughs> gonna
2: apply it the same way?
1: So what's nice about the guidelines, they won't be applied the same way. They're not really supposed to be applied the same way. These are not, they're like really a pathway. So there's there's some choices of ways to do things. There's different options and the different resources in different places. And the, like we mentioned, the distances from the hospital are, are important. What they are doing a really nice job of is laying out, look, in this situation, your risk of having one of these infections is maybe one in 200. And so Different people may decide that that risk means I should give them antibiotics right away or that I should wait and, and see how things go before giving antibiotics. And both of those are reasonable. What the guidelines do a really nice job of is, is not saying, okay, at, at this at this level, you have to do this. They are doing that at some cutoffs and saying like, look, it's, it's kind of unreasonable not to give antibiotics to a three-day-old who has a fever because their likelihood of having a, a serious infection. That can be life-threatening is really high and so it doesn't make sense not to do that but when you get to this one in a hundred and no one really knows how to judge that and we don't know some of the harm if we gave a hundred kids antibiotics unnecessarily how much harm that might cause and so they kind of leave it open for how you apply that information which i think is really really useful and and, and makes it so it can be a longer standing guideline this Guidelines great it's new now and it's going to be new for a while but there's a good chance at the speed that these come out that if you are listening to this and and kids are a little older that this these guidelines may be the same when you have grandkids and 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 that's it can be a little bit concerning because sometimes it slows the changing of how we do things even as we get more information so as time goes on and and as a good practice it's good to really really make your doctors explain the whys and really push them as to the, to know to understand why they're doing what they're doing instead of just following a guideline that that may have come out a long time ago. Not the case here. We have that situation in some other things in pediatrics where we have guidelines that are that are they're very, very old that are still followed kind of to a T, uh, probably to the detriment of some kids.
0: I also do think the variability is it's very nuanced because we have had these guidelines or promise of these guidelines. For the last seven years, and then they finally came out, it was the beginning of our training. And this was the new hot thing that was going to happen. And then now in a very anticlimactic fashion, now that I've been kicked out of the nest and a fully functional practicing physician, the guidelines are now here. It. Is interesting because even throughout my training, some of the things that were very normal for us at Yale, because there are experts in the field who have been doing the, the legwork and doing the research that is the underpinnings of the guidelines, when I went on to fellowship in a different location, different practice environment, some of the things that seemed very normal for me, people were like, that is pure crazy, and you're trying to kill off babies, which does not make you super popular as a new fellow, incidentally. I got a lot of you're not from here, which I thought was a way of just an East Coast, West Coast thing. Sort of hard to tell. Um, I'm going to take it as a compliment.
2: Um, Definitely a compliment. Definitely a testament to your love of the data, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) nothing else, not the salt.
0: But I think it speaks to the fact that it it isn't A leads to B, B leads to C. There is a bit of a choose your own adventure type of thing. And it is well-grounded in evidence, even amongst the variability of how you apply it to the individual baby. So you're not being misserved if what we are describing to you isn't exactly the way it goes with your beautiful 28-day-old. Yeah.
1: Point of, of having a guideline like this is not to get rid of any variation in care but to get rid of unwanted variation in care and there there actually should be some variation around the edges of this stuff the general concept should be the same idea grounded in the idea that we're worried about these bacterial infections and we're trying to figure out who has them and who doesn't those concepts should be there for everybody but there should be some variation in this, and there's other there's other diseases where we really want less variation. Really, any variation is kind of unwanted. That's not the case here, so you, so you can expect some variability in, in how this is approached. And you may also be weighing in as well. They may, when they're saying, "Well, here's the risk," it's not necessarily up to the doctor to decide. They, they're going to want to decide with you in a lot of cases. Of, of here, there's some options of how we can do this, and we can decide together. That's uh, that's going to happen a
2: little bit more often. So where do you see this going? There's an evolution of this guideline, hopefully, to where every family gets their own canary, or each individual child is born with their own specific canary that lets them know when something foul is right. afoot, yes. and you have a discussion <laughs> with the family, with the canary right. to <laughs> right. figure so, things out. How yep. do you see this evolving yep. we'll, in the future?
1: Um, so I think what we what we will see, I think that the the concept is probably going to stay the same. We're trying to figure out how we cut off that ten percent kids who have bacterial infections and figure out who they are and then who that 90% is and hopefully get better at doing that. So I think in the previous approaches, we've, we've gotten about about half of the kids, we've been able to say, okay, you're, we're not worried about you. And hopefully we can increase that number. Or maybe we'll be able to say, oh, actually, we have, we have better testing now. If we use this combination of testing, we can actually identify the 10%, which would be even better. And so I, I, I'm hopeful it'll go that way and because i think if you told us procalcitonin was going was going to be important 7 years ago none of us would have we thought that was a made up word right <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't that helpful but then you know that's that's changing so so i'm hopeful we're going to get better at this that maybe we'll, we're going to be able to identify the infections more quickly there's already some work with that with pcr testing for bacterial stuff so we don't have to wait that we could get even faster than the lasers which vicky i know that would be disappointing to you it would but be... um
2: bitterly disappointing. I yeah. can't foresee a practice of medicine where we're not lasering things left and right.
1: Right. There's- My vision
2: of the future is all babies are born with some kind of <laughs> laserable component and the parents can just use their own retinal inbuilt laser to scan them yeah. for a bacterial yeah. load and then trigger an evaluation using a guideline hopefully evolved by then, <sighs> not the grandparent, version, a new version at that time, and then using the lasers, using the guideline, using that the canary. Cool. We can't forget the canary.
1: No, I don't think that wasn't, uh, then but we'll you know, I'm not necessarily something. a visionary when it comes yeah, to Yeah, that's my stuff, vision. So, um, but I, I would hope that that we would always have some room for lasers somewhere in the practice. We must media. have some
2: room for lasers. We can't live without them. It's <laughs> foolish to practice <laughs> medicine laserlessly.
0: This is probably a good segue to just do a little bit of a recap. Um, We have talked about this special baby population, 60 days and under, the well baby population that is very good at hiding potentially bad things, and how we're using this brand new guideline guiding some of the therapeutic and diagnostic testing that is done in the hospital. Should you find yourself in this case, I think that's been really important information for us. Any last thoughts that you would like to share about this process?
1: These guidelines are really going to be helpful. It's going to help us take care of babies with fevers a little bit better. And if you, your baby has a fever, don't panic. It's a sign that there's an infection, which there's a very good chance your baby is going to handle perfectly on your own. I think one of the things that we sometimes lose sight of is we, you come to the hospital and we do all this testing, and we give you antibiotics, and your baby gets better. If your baby didn't have a bacterial infection, none of the stuff that we did actually helped. That it was just making sure that your baby wasn't sicker, and that your baby got better on their own. And so that's really important. It's only those small cases where where the the baby has a bacterial infection, where the antibiotics are going to help, and all those things we're doing are helping. Otherwise, most of the time, baby's doing it on their own. So we said all these things that are that the baby isn't great at and doesn't have a great immune system. It's not that they have no immune system, and and they're they're stronger than you think, and they uh, they're you got to give them some credit when they do those those things on their own as well. Give them a you know pat on the head for that.
2: Yeah. Give them a pat on the head. Give them a parent with a laser beam eyeball who can detect bacteremia. You don't have to go to the hospital. Get your horse and buggy calcitonin. And once they're over 60 days old, you, you and consider saying farewell. I That's do like it. coming in
0: strong as an advocate for the babies.
2: They're the best patients. I mean, better with canaries, obviously better with lasers. Who among us isn't? But you know, Matt. While we've got you, what is your guideline that you are totally against? Which one is the one that's harming babies or children, or what's the deal? What's the elderly one that needs revision? Which one do you have beef with?
1: It's the hyperbilirubinemia or the jaundice guideline is the is the one that I think it's uh, long past. That's ex- well, it is long past its expiration date. They expire in five years. That one came out in two
2: thousand three. Oh, twist. No. I've done the math on that. That is a little elderly, even perhaps more elderly Mm -hmm. than me. I say, come on back, bring the puppy. We'll get into it. (laughs) Figure out how to give every baby a canary, a laser beam, a billy blanket, and then not use these grandparent-ago style policies that we've got and see what we can do to get a little bit more up to date. Just write the new one on here. You heard it here first on this very pod.
0: It has been a pleasure to have another voice that is not just the two of us talking about pediatric That is your sole qualification, (laughs) but also the extensive
2: experience, but mostly just not being us, right? (laughs) Yes. That's been about it. I'll take it. That all joking
0: aside, Dr. Grossman did have a huge Huge, role for both of us in our most formative years as resident doctors. So it is really a pleasure to be able to talk to you now, which that also does mean that if you don't like our opinions, you can actually blame him because... He was the one molding and shaping our young minds before we got kicked out of the residency nest. But you definitely gave us a lot of tools to be really critical about the evidence, emphasized the importance of high quality information. And I don't know, for Dr. Vicky who has dipped her toes into the quality improvement arena, maybe also fostered that Thank interest. you, so much. So, thank you yeah, so
2: much. Thank you so much. It was a
1: pleasure working with you then and a pleasure being here today.
2: Thank, thank you. you so much. Shall
0: we recap? Yes, let's. Let's sum up this second part of our medical episode about febrile infants with a few not so gentle reminders and
2: practical tips. A not so gentle reminder is that when you do seek medical care, the workup may be fairly extensive. It will likely involve blood work, urine testing, blood testing for a blood culture, and additionally, potentially a spinal tap. So get yourself ready for that.
0: An additional not-so-gentle reminder is that if there is a concern based on the workup that is done, you might expect being admitted to the hospital for antibiotics, or you might be sent home with very close follow-up with your primary care provider.
2: And the final not-so-gentle reminder is that if we treat your child with antibiotics, but there was no bacterial infection, they did it all on their own. So we need to give them credit despite being a baby with a developing but not completely their immune system.
0: Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Dr. Matt Grossman, who took the time to talk to us and educate us all. We would love it if you subscribed and left us a five-star review. We do want this to be helpful for you. So we are very eager for your feedback and you can provide it in lots of different ways
2: please email us at notsogentlereminder@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Please DM us on the gram at notsogentlereminder. You can tell us what happened when you went to the hospital and if you too think babies are the best kinds of patients. And you can call us at 917-426-6908. Tell us what you want us to cover, any products you want us to review, any questions you have, how we can make this better for you. Please see our show notes for links and see our website notsogentlereminder.com for episode transcripts. Our
0: next episode will be the companion episode to this very large two-parter. We will be covering home-based monitoring for babies, so please stay tuned for that. And here comes our disclaimer. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. This podcast does not represent the opinions of our employers. It is purely for education and entertainment. Every child and every family is unique. If you're experiencing a medical emergency, please call 911. If you have specific questions about the care of your child, please be in touch with their doctor.